You're listening to In Country, a podcast covering Marvel Comics, The Nom. Hello and welcome to episode 10 of In Country, a podcast that is taking a complete look at the 1980s Marvel Comics series, The Nom. I am your host, Tom Panneries. This time around, I will be taking a look at issue 10 of The Nom, which is the first after the rather tragic events of issue 9. If you recall in that issue, which I covered last episode, Mike Albergo, who is clearly our main character, Ed Marks' best friend, was shot and killed by sniper fire after what was a very action-heavy issue. Compounding the tragedy was that Mike was short, and had just decided to re-up so that he could spend another six months to a year in the Army, reaping whatever benefits he could, he could before he was finally discharged. So we will see Ed Marks' grief as well what is basically the beginning of the end for his tour in Vietnam, because Ed, at the end of the issue, will realize that he is short. The issue starts out in late October of 1966, and then it will move into November. So I decided to go with 96 Tears by Question Mark and the Mysterians, a song that hit number one on the Billboard Hot 100 in October of 66 and has a bit of history behind it. The lead singer of the group actually changed his name from Rudy Martinez to Question Mark. And the song had originally been called 69 Tears, but the band changed the number to avoid controversy and you know, hopefully be able to get it on the radio. The song itself was first recorded for a small label called Pagogo before having a wide release by Cameo Records in 1966. The original pressing of the song on the 45 uh, under Pagogo is actually pretty rare and sought after. I do have a copy of this song on 45, not that rare one, but I have a, one of the 45s uh, that were issued by Cameo in the, in the mid-60s. I picked up for very cheap. It was, either, it was either off of eBay or at a thrift store. I, I don't remember when, where, um, I think I got it because I was just like, hey, this looks cool. I like this song. For some reason, I thought I wanted a 45. I don't know. Anyway, let's get to the issue. Uh, the title of the issue is Gorilla Action. It was released on June 16, 1987. It is cover dated September 1987. It's written by Doug Murray, penciled by Mike Golden, inks by John Beatty. Phil Felix was the letterer and colorist, Larry Hama was the editor, and Tom DeFalco is now the editor-in-chief of Marvel Comics. The cover, which by the way is by Golden, features Marks and Rob running towards something that is happening outside of the frame, so to speak, while scared villagers cower in a house. Based on the orange glow of their faces, I say they're running towards some sort of action. We don't begin with action. We begin in the PX in late October of 66, just before National Day, one of the Republic of Vietnam's major holidays. Sarge and Rob hang out by the bar near the television, which has the news on, and the news is talking about national police smashing a plot to blow up U.S. Vietnamese buildings to spoil the observance of National Day. In the foreground is Ed Marks, who is unshaven and unkempt with his head on a table and is clinging to his fourth beer. Rob says to Sarge that they have to snap him out of whatever funk he is in. We cut then to National Day, 1966, which is on or about the 1st of November, and we see that while there are parades and celebrations, there are also bombings. The 23rd is given the assignment of assisting the ARVN Rangers in defending the city of Saigon from such terrorist action. 
They'll get going at 0600 the next day, which gives the guys enough time to go to the PX for a drink. Marks still looks horrible, and Rob joins him. While they're on the way to the PX, Rob tells Marks that he can't keep this up. Ed replies that it's none of Rob's business, but Rob calls BS on that, saying Alberga was his friend too, and that Ed is his friend, and he's worried about how he's crawling into the bottle. Ed tells him to leave it alone, and Rob says, All right, I'll leave you alone. Go get drunk. Then tomorrow you can get yourself killed. That'd make Mike real happy, wouldn't it? The next morning, the guys get together with the ARVN and begin patrolling the city. Marx is paired up with Ramnerain and a couple of ARVN rangers. The ARVN troops definitely expect trouble, but Ramnerain is more casual. Marx tells him to just stay out of his way. They split up and start patrolling. While he's walking through the streets, Mark does well, he's propositioned by a prostitute whom he brushes off, and then he thinks, yeah, Rob's right. Get myself together. He then comes across Ramnerine, well, doing a little business on the side and while he's on patrol, and he gets a little annoyed that Ramnerine would do something while on duty. They cross the parade route where Tran Van Van is set to speak, and the ARVN soldiers tell him to be alert. Tran Van Van's limo takes, makes its way down the road, and suddenly men with machine guns start firing into the limo. The ARVN soldiers act quickly, shooting at the would-be assassins as well as into the crowd, which horrifies Marx. Later, back at the hooch, Marx tells Sarge he didn't understand why, how they opened fire on a crowd of civilians like that as if they didn't care about civilian casualties. Sarge explains that they don't, because the men who are serving as ARVN rangers don't have a lot of the scruples that the U.S. GIs have. In fact, he compares them to mercenaries rather than men fighting for a cause. Ramnerine says it's just like non-white soldiers who can, can't buy their way out of the war, and when Sarge and Ed try to counter that point, he walks off calling both of them whitey. Marx makes a comment about how Ramnerine was up to something that afternoon. And we cut to them on patrol again. Marx gives the kid a candy bar. Ramnerine comments about how much they get for that candy bar on the black market. Marx replies that he doesn't know what he means. And Ramnerine calls out his naivete, saying that the whole economy is in the country is built on Americans in war. They are then approached by a kid who asks for cigarettes and chocolate, and then offers them some, well, boom boom, as well as some weed. Ed goes to give the kid a chocolate bar, and the kid refuses. Ramnerine offers the kid a carton of cigarettes. He says the price is 500p. Sorry, 5,000p. The kid says, no way, 1,000p. The two of them bartered to 2,500, with Ramnerine walking away feeling like he's taught Marx a lesson about economics. They are ordered then to hurry up, because there is trouble brewing at the airport, which is being shelled. They arrive to a jet that's on fire and explosions that are going off, and then they head to the bunkers where they can provide counterfire for the better part of half an hour before getting the all clear. That night, Marks and the guys are woken up by Sarge, who says they have an alert. Ramnerine is nowhere to be seen, but they don't have time to look for him as they have to head to the, back to the airport. As they head out to do whatever sweep they have to do, Rob comments that Ed is looking better, and Marks acknowledges that he went off the deep end a little bit. Several hours later, the operation is over. They head back, finding Ramnerine in bed. Ramnerine apparently has been, well, outselling his wares instead of where he was supposed to be, and he gets an Article 15, or a non-judicial discipline, as a result. As Rob is telling this to Marks, the two are on patrol, and they come across a prostitute beating up a GI because he's refusing to pay her. He says he didn't promise nothing, and didn't do nothing either. And he slaps her, calling her a stupid gook. Marks hits the soldier in the stomach with the butt of his rifle, and Rob pulls him back, saying, Ed, you can't do that. It's a job for the MPs. Marks replies, yeah, yeah, I know. Sorry, Rob, I just, I just had too much, you know. The prostitute gets her money, and a kid approaches Marks asking for chocolate, which Marks happily gives him for free. 
The national day is now over. The guys go back to the hooch, and Marx realizes that he just broke 90 days, which means he's short. Rob offers to take him out for a drink to celebrate, but Marx says, you know what, I think I'll just get a Coke. Now, the death of a friend and the main character's subsequent downward spiral is a common trope, especially in literature and film that deals with war. People in my generation may remember Goose's death in Top Gun, for instance. While it doesn't necessarily deal with military operations, Johnny's death in The Outsiders. In some cases, the main character finds a way to get back on his feet. Although in others, such as Kaczynski's death in All Quiet on the Western Front, it winds up being the very last thing before the main character gives up. And I bring up that particular novel because Marx is very much a Paul Balmer, and Albergo is very Kaczynski-like. He's not a father figure in the way that Cat was, but he definitely has that older brother figure type of thing going for him. He's the guy who helped initiate him into the daily life of the war. So it's completely understandable that after the last page of the last issue where Marx is huddled over Albergo's dead body, that we'd see Ed in seriously bad condition, this time huddled over a table and clutching a bottle. Golden does a good job at making Marx look not just disheveled, but wrecked. And I have to give credit for him, to him and to John Beatty for the inking and Phil Felix for the coloring, because they help bring out the unshaven face, the bloodshot eyes, and when Marx thinks about how he has to get his crap together, we see ghostly images of Alberigo, Cruz, and the Vietnamese woman that had smacked him over the head way back in issue three. And the light touch that Beatty does with the inks and the colors that Felix provides, they really, really wind up being effective. The story overall is effective because Marx does not seem to be frightened back into the action to some degree. Remember, despite having been at war for 10 months, he's still a kid, and I'm pretty sure that he's probably never had to deal with his best friend being killed. So it's the depression of the bottle. When we see him on the street, we see the Marx, well, we see the Marx we got to know at the beginning of the series because, you know, he is the type of guy to give candy to a kid because it's a nice thing to do. At the same time, even though he's better at the end, because he's not like drinking himself to death at this point, he's not all better. The scene where he catches the prostitute beating up the Air Force servicemen and then smacks him in the stomach with the butt of his rifle is definitely meant to show that the war has changed him somewhat. It seems though that Murray's trying to do this subtly and not going the cliche route of war changing a man so much that he becomes so hardened and wouldn't recognize his former self. In fact, Ed really is going to be quite kind of a gee whiz kid all the way till the end of his time in Vietnam. The issue also gives us a chance to see further development of another character. Ramnarain was a little sly when he was introduced a while back. He was not stupid, and he wasn't stupid enough to bribe Top, and he actually went, was instrumental you know, in helping them take Top down. But now we see that he's not above making some money on the side. He's dealing in cigarettes. He basically is hawking what he can do, to make a little cash. So he's not the most scrupulous guy. I don't think he's the type to sell anyone out or to bully anyone. He's more just... He's in it to make money for himself, and that seems to be about it. And yeah, it will. Co- it comes back to bite him in the ass. Ram Narain also introduces us to something that will be shown in future issues. And that is racial tension. The storming out of the barracks and calling charge and as Ed Whitey, a little bit of cedary chewing there. But the conversation they were having was actually a good one. Sarge brought up the fact that many upper class men, who mostly white men, had essentially bought their way out of actually serving in the war, while the rest of them were sent to fight. Ramnarain mentions that it's all white people who are doing that, while the people of color are all sent to die, and this is not an uncommon argument from the time 
or really from any war. Taking race out of the equation, I mentioned All Quiet on the Western Front a little earlier in my review, and that novel has a similar discussion among soldiers about how they are being made to fight a war for rich people. The backdrop of a city patrol is effective because it takes us out of the jungle, which is where we have been for most of the last few issues. We also get a chance to see the local fighting forces as well. The ARVN soldiers, who don't have names in the issue, are clearly pretty hardened, and you do get the feeling that Sarge is right. They don't care per se about the civilians they may hurt, because they're essentially hired hands. And the action of the assassination attempt is done well as, uh, as well. Uh, it happens with a couple of panels and it's over, and we get to see Mark's reaction. Murray and Golden seem to be trying to show action like this in a way that wouldn't, well, wouldn't come off as something out of a movie where there might be slow motion or scoring or things that would be dragged out for dramatic effect, you know. Here comes the assassin. Bum, 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 bum. You know, it's, it's like that. It almost happens like a car accident. Quicker than you realize, and it's gone. Murray seems to be trying to show the war objectively as possible, by the way. Uh, the enemy is still the enemy. But as much as this is more complicated war than others that we're used to reading about in war comics, for instance, like World War II, and I'm not trying to bat- rag on Sergeant Rock or Army at War or GI Combat or any of those things. Uh, it's just that you Nazis made easy villains. And you, you could tell those stories without a lot of gray area. Here, there is quite a bit of gray area. Uh, and what Murray is trying to do is just show the good and the bad behavior of people on our side. It's spelled out clearly through the airmen who Mark sees being smacked around by a prostitute because he refused to pay her. And then the airmen's used the word gook and snacking, smacking her once he gets off the ground which prompts Marks to smack with the butt of his rifle um, I'm actually surprised that they got the word gook and the word dink which they used last issue past the comics code because it's a racial slur and I'm honestly I mean I don't I'm not very comfortable using it but since it's in here and it's actually used appropriately and its use in the situation makes sense in the context, or at least, you know, it's the realism in the context there. I, you know, I, I understand why it's there, and then that's why I'm like, okay, it works. I'm not going to sit there and, and get mad about it um, because that wouldn't make sense. Because this is. Uh, but he, cause he also uses it sparingly, too. It's almost like he, it's his one F bomb during the PG 13 movie, so he's using it where it counts. And it does make the scene effective as well. This was I enjoyed the issue. I enjoyed um, the fact that they did follow up right away on uh, Albergo's death, um, even though we're month to month. I like that uh, Marx is going to be short soon, so that we really do get the feeling that things are going to come to an end. Golden seems to be on full pencils rather than the breakdown, so his art is definitely tighter. Uh, Beatty's inks are finally fitting him well, really well. And I like that we get reminder, like I said, that, that Ed's going to go home. I'd be surprised if he doesn't, considering how happy he seems in the last page when he finds out he's short. And that's it. Uh, when I get back, I'll talk historical context, letters, and I'll take a look at ads. Hey, Jeff. Hey, Mike. Man, it sure is great to be back to, from crisis to crisis after all this time. It's been a busy year for both of us. For very different reasons. But now we're ready to cover the post-death and return Superman stories. Yeah, and we're about to start the books that came out in 1994, which means that we have so much to look forward to, like Bizarro's World. 
The Battle for and Fall of Metropolis. Superman Doomsday, Hunter, Prey. Worlds Collide. Well, you're looking forward to that one. Oh, bite me. Zero hour. Zero month. And right there at the end, we have Dead Again. And don't forget, the Elseworlds annuals as well. Well, most of them, anyway. Yeah, yeah, yeah. some of those really did suck, don't they? But from Crisis to Crisis is back. New episodes will drop on Thursday, just like before. You can find the show at the Superman homepage, www.supermanhomepage.com, as well as at the Superman Podcast Network, which is at www.supermanpodcastnetwork.com. And we also have a Facebook page that you can like by going to www.facebook.com slash from crisis to crisis a superman podcast.com. Is it dot com on there? No. No, no, it's not. No, no dot com. Forget that. <laughs> so from crisis to crisis is back, folks, and better than ever. Well, I'm better than ever. You need some work. No, shut up. No, you 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 shut up. From Crisis to Crisis, a Superman podcast, covering the post-crisis adventures of Superman, one half month at a time, every Thursday at www.supermanhomepage.com and www.fortressofbailitude.com. And we're back. So a couple of specific notes here before I go into the more general stuff. National Day in Vietnam is currently held on September 2nd and is done so to commemorate the Vietnamese Declaration of Independence and was done so in North Vietnam during the time when the country had been split in two. South Vietnam celebrated National Day on October 26th as a commemoration of the signing of its constitution, which happened on October 26, 1956. There were acts of terror in and around Saigon among, around the time of National Day and its celebrations in 1966. On November 1st, communists directed long-range recoilless rifle fire into downtown Saigon during National Day, killing, uh, National Day celebration, killing or wounded 51 persons. On November 2nd, a grenade was thrown by a terrorist at the Futo racetrack in Saigon, killing two people and wounding eight others, including two children. On November 3rd, communist squads infiltrated the outskirts of Saigon, firing 24 recoilless rifle shells in the city. Among the buildings hit are Saigon's Central Market, Growl Hospital, Saigon Cathedral, a seminary chapel, and several private homes. Eight people were killed, 37 seriously wounded. I should say that I got all of this from the uh, info, by the way, from 11thcavnom.com and its page on terrorism during the war. They do not mention an assassination attempt on someone named Tran Van Van during the National Day of Celebrations, but it is, there is a mention of the assassination of a man named Tran Van Van on December 7th, saying that he was a constituent assemblyman and was assassinated while en route to a National Assembly building. The death weapon was a 32 caliber East German pistols, and his killers were captured. Otherwise, there really isn't ter- anything in terms of major events in the war going on at this time. Uh, one event of note, though, in the world of popular culture is that on November 9th, uh, John Lennon met Yoko Ono. And the rest, they say, is history there, right, guys? <laughs> so let's move on to the letters. Uh, incoming for this issue, we have a long, long letter uh, from Sylvia Heisler from Charlotte, North Carolina, whose brother was in the war. She's 30 years old in, as of 1987. And she's saying how she really gets a serious understanding of what it was uh what it was like she says she remembers being in high school when when her brother was in nam and 
Uh, there were demonstrations that were happening, uh, the burning of the University of Kentucky ROTC building, Kent State, and she never really understood why. And she commends them for an excellent book and saying it's, it's sort of like it really is a, a educational experience and something that really gives her a better understanding of what her brother, who, who, was, a, who was a vet, um, went through. They say, thank you. It's letters like yours that make the worth on this project all worthwhile. Really, our best to you, your family, and your brother. Keep on reading and, and thinking. The per- one of the people who wrote saying that it was lacking historical background and says that issue seven, well, that remedied that. And he said that I'm glad you included your little clip on a page two, if only to point out that not everyone in Duong's position joined the American side. It's also clear that he regarded the U.S. forces simpler, the lesser of many evils. And then he liked Van Sant's, uh, Van Sant's artwork. Nom notes for this issue. Okay. We have Article 15, which is non-judicial punishment, usually administered by the company level, a way of punishing troops without court-martial and permanent records. Assembly area is just what it says, a place where the headquarters group gathers the troops for a mission or pickup. The ARVN, the Army Republic of Vietnam. Buku, a bastardization of Buku, which is French for a lot. Boom Boom, a very close form of fraternization. He says, you want Boom Boom, he's basically, you want to go get some. Cannon fodder or throwaway troops used just for numbers. Charlie was the VC. Greeny, a new troop. Kick off the sort of mission, the start of mission. Lock and load. Priming a rifle for action. Literally locking around in the chamber ready to fire. P, short for piesters. Piesters? Vietnamese currency. PX, the post exchange, a sort of military su- supermarket on bases. Usually only place to get luxury goods. Uh, my in-laws have PX privileges at Marine Corps headquarters based in Quantico, Virginia, because they live near there, and my father-in-law is ex-Air Force. TD, Vietnamese for a little bit, and weed. Well, that's slang for marijuana, kids. <laughs> you know, marijuana? What are you, chicken? I'm not chicken! You're a turkey! Anyway, ads for this issue. <laughs> Same M&M's ad. Oh, no, it's a slightly different M&M's ad. This time they're going swimming. All right, whatever. Robotech role-playing ad. Mr. O is, well, he's showing how you can get your O face for privacies and cast, especially if you talk to Penny. TSR has a couple of role-playing games at the center of the comic, one of which is D-Day to the Rhine, which... Um, kind of looks cool. Onslaught. Onslaught! D-Day to the Rhine. Um, one of the coolest... Wow, my voice just cracked. One of the coolest uh, board games I've ever played, but it's a pain in the ass to set up, is Axis and Allies, which is basically like kind of like Risk, but set in World War II. I loved that game, and I've only played it a handful of times. Um, I don't have every piece of it. I have most of the pieces, but I don't have every piece of it. Uh, I have my old ver- version that I got back in like 89, 90. It would take like two hours to set the damn game up. And then I remember playing one game with my friend Chris that took like two days to play. Um, it's pretty cool. Uh, we have Mile High Comics, which is having an incredible Marvel sale. Actually, the Mile High Comics goes to, is about a page and a half. We have pri- another prize is for cash, this time the Shell's Leadership Club. Bullpen Bulletins profiles Tom DeFalco and doesn't mention anything about Shooter, from what I can tell you. Don Perlin, the art director, is leaving. Marvel Saga, Alpha Flight, and Strike Force Morituri will be joining Power Pack as a direct 
distribution. Joe Allman of Seymour, Indiana won a 12-month subscription to all eight titles in the New Universe, plus a page of original New Universe artwork and a nifty red Marvel baseball jacket, just like the ones we make available to our staff, people, and special friends. And I hope you enjoy that, because I don't think the, the Marvel New Universe is long for this world at this point in 1987. There were first prize winners, John Wolf of Susquehanna, New Jersey, Lim B. Kiam of Singapore, Greg Kerman of India Atlantic, Florida, Jeffrey Brace of Red Bank, New Jersey, and then the people who won a 12-month subscription to the new universe and got gypped as a result. Michael Skagas of Oakland, California, John Sloan Carroll of Rocket Mountain, Virginia, Robert Orr of North Shore, California, Derek Gordon of Winnipeg, Emery Swaggerty of Houghton, Kansas, Doug Simonton of Katy, Texas, Ben Sanford of Longmeadow, Massachusetts, David Davis of Haleyville, Alabama, Robert Cosby of Salem, Kentucky, and Freddie King of Flushing, New York. Congratulations on your new universe sweepstakes. I probably shouldn't make that much fun of the new universe, but whatevs. We have the same cheaper by the dozen Marvel subscription ad, and we have Here Comes the Fudge! Introducing Stripes, Striped Chips Ahoy, and you could cut out all these squares of a cookie coming becoming a striped chips ahoy cookie so you could ruin your comic and make a flip book so it shows you how the chips ahoy got striped we used to eat these as kids and i don't think i remember them being very good but i remember getting them as a kid i don't think they, they don't make them anymore i haven't had chips ahoy in god years Back cover ad, The Wedding of the Year, and You're Invited. Join Peter Parker and Mary Jane Watson as they tie the knot in the Amazing Spider-Man Annual number 21. Also, take a special look back at their relationship in Marvel Saga number 22. I actually have Amazing Spider-Man Annual 21. I have the... I might still have it. I don't remember if I do, but I the, the, the copy I had of the superheroes all running at each other um, with Spider-Man and Mary Jane. Um, glad to see that those two are still enjoying a happy marriage. Because that joke doesn't get old. Okay. That's about it for this episode and this issue. Come back next time in two weeks. We'll all be talking about the nom number 11, doing the same historical context, letters, and ads. And until then, thank you once again for listening. But I know now I'll just try You have been listening to In Country, a podcast that covers Marvel Comics' The Nom. The Nom and all of the comics associated with it are copyright Marvel Comics, and as this podcast is intended for entertainment purposes, and I make no money off of it, no infringement is intended. Images, clips, and show notes can be found at Pop Culture Affidavit, which you can find at popcultureaffidavit.com. Feedback can be sent to popcultureaffidavit at gmail.com and may likely be read on the air as I occasionally do email-centric episodes or segments. Thank you for listening and come back in two weeks for the next chapter in the saga of The Nom. Cry, cry, cry. Come on, baby. Let me hear you cry now. All night long.